by force. The United States, our allies, desperately needed to stop Hitler and Rommel and the stormtroopers and bring Germany to its knees. In June of that year, a huge secret assault was planned for the coast of German-occupied France, known as Operation Neptune. It was part of a larger campaign known as Operation Overlord. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was the supreme commander of the Allied forces. He is the one who ordered the Normandy invasion we know as D-Day. On the eve of that invasion, Eisenhower sent this message to his troops. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-equipped, well-trained, battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage, in your devotion to duty, and your skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. So good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Although there were many casualties on this campaign, the Allied forces were victorious in driving the Germans back home, where eventually the war in Europe ended. And we applaud the courage and the bravery of so many young people who sacrificed their lives for freedom. Last week in our story, we talked about living by faith, not by fear. This week, we see a perfect picture of that in a guy named Joshua and in his leadership. Joshua chapter 1 is where the story has turned this week, chapter 7 of the book called The Story. Joshua is encouraged in this chapter over and over again by the Lord to have courage, not fear. He says to him three times, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And then for good measure, God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, it is not unusual for God to encourage his people this way. Some variation of this message, don't be afraid, is actually found in the Bible about a hundred times. <laughs> But the best part of God's message to Joshua is found in the opening words of his message before he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. For God said in Joshua chapter 1, starting with verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you Every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. That's the Mediterranean. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I count those the greater words because it was not up to Joshua 
to win the battle. It was up to his God to win that battle. God wanted his people to understand from the very beginning that victory for the nation of Israel was to be found not in superior weaponry or in an elaborate battle strategy like they had on D-Day, but in their simple obedience to God. That's it. It was not to be found in their own goodness or strength, but in the goodness and strength of the Lord himself. When on June 6, 1944, the Third Army stormed the beaches of Normandy, this was the largest tactical attack ever amassed by humankind. The Allied forces included 5,000 ships and landing craft, 50,000 vehicles, 11,000 airplanes, and 156,000 troops from the United States, Canada, England, Norway, France, and elsewhere. The generals and their staffs had worked on this battle plan for weeks, fine-tuning every aspect of it as much as possible. I understand that they studied 40,000 maps so that they would know every square inch of that beach that they were storming. But what was so challenging, however, when Joshua and the Israelites prepared to cross over the Jordan and to take possession of the land of Canaan was that none of God's initial battle plan seemed to make A lot of sense. They hadn't been in on it. God said, this is what you must do. Now go do it. He said to Joshua basically this. He says, I want you to take those two million people that you're in charge of, and I want you to cross this flood-swollen Jordan River. Get to the other side. I'll help you do that. And once you get there, I want you to circumcise all of the males in that whole group of people. Very very difficult, very painful thing for them to undergo. And then I want you to go to Jericho and I want you to march around that city once a day, blowing the trumpets of the Lord. Second day, go and march around it again. Third day, go around and march it again. And each day until the seventh day. Then on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. And after you've finished the seventh time, I want everybody to blow trumpets and raise a shout and the walls will collapse and you'll take the city. Joshua promised the Lord that he would do whatever God commanded him to do. The people promised Joshua, we will do whatever you tell us to do. And so they followed God's instructions to the letter, even when they didn't understand the Lord's strategy. And amazingly, victory was theirs. Victory was won. Jericho fell. Success was not in an elaborate battle plan, but in the hands of God himself. Now, how many of you this morning have read chapter 7 of the story? If you've read chapter 7, just show your hand there. That's great. Just stay with us because there's amazing things happening here. I had some people tell me this week how helpful this has been for them to see this big picture that they've never seen before of the Bible. As they've got the story, they're starting to understand how all the pieces fit together and what this big picture looks like. It's a very important thing we're doing. This chapter is about Joshua and the conquest of the land of Canaan. And you may have had some questions as you went through it. I know there's one big question that many people have, and that is the question about God's order to exterminate the people who live there. Anybody have that question? And if you say, whoa, what's that about? (laughs) Why is God telling them to kill every man, woman, and child, these Canaanite nations? He names six different nations, and he says, you know, as you go in and you take over these cities, don't leave anybody alive. Kill all the people there. Kill their livestock. Leave nothing alive. And it seems contrary to the God we've heard about up to this point. 
Someone asked me last Sunday, they pulled me aside out here at the fall festival. We had the October festival. They said, you know, I'm really curious about that. Why is that? What, what's the answer to that? Why, why does God command that? This has been a constant question in people's minds as they read the Old Testament. It's important because this can be one of those things where people say, well, forget it. I don't want a God like that. This is what causes them to disbelieve and to doubt and to reject God altogether. So the answer is very important. And it's a question that we don't answer with a glib answer like, well, it was a very barbaric time. You know, people did that all the time. And that explains it supposedly. Or God's ways are not our ways. You know, they're just some, some kind of a little saying that, that maybe is supposed to answer that. No, let's answer that. And here's a place where the upper story of God really helps us to understand the lower story. The lower story is brutality. The lower story is barbarism. The lower story is, is dog-eat-dog. And if you don't kill, kill your enemy, the enemy's going to kill you. This is a very awful situation in the lower story. But what is the upper story? What is the understanding of this? That's what we want to get to. Charles Templeton, who was a vocal opponent of Christianity, said, The God of the Old Testament is utterly unlike the God believed in by most practicing Christians. His justice is by most standards outrageous. He is biased. He is querulous. He is vindictive. He is jealous of his prerogatives. An atheist named George H. Smith added, he said, The Old Testament God garnered an impressive list of atrocities. Jehovah himself was fond of directly exterminating large numbers of people, usually through pestilence or famine, and often for rather unusual offenses. Smith also liked to quote Thomas Jefferson, who said that the Old Testament accounts of God reveal that he is cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. A lot of people see God of the Old Testament and they say, what is with that? Why would you want a God like that? Why would God be like that deserves an answer. In Joshua's battle campaign, God ordered the extermination of the six nations. Why is that? Why did God say, leave no survivors, even the children? Well, let me explain. First of all, you need to understand from the upper story that we are all under condemnation. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve to die. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and not just physical death, but eternal death in hell. That is the lot, that is the place, that is what is just for all of us. We are all under that condemnation. So when he condemns those people in Canaan was not an act of brutality and not an act of meanness. It was an act of justice. That is what they deserved. God had given the Canaanites 600 years to repent of their sins. They chose not to. He had, had tried to nurture their faith in him the way that he nurtured others, and they did not respond. If they had repented, they would have been spared just as God spared the repentant Ninevites in the days of Jonah. You know, Jonah went to this wicked city called Nineveh and he preached to them about the Lord and they repented and Jonah was upset because he knew that was going to happen and he didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to be punished. But they did and God spared a wicked city named Nineveh. 
The same thing would have happened except the people in Canaan would not repent. So God had to remove, completely remove the depravity, the utter wickedness of the Canaanites or they would have become a snare and a toxic temptation to the Israelites. Besides, God's holiness demanded sin's removal so that he could take up residence there with his people. These are reasons why God had to remove the wickedness of that land. God could no longer tolerate the evil that had permeated the entire Amorite population. These people, just so you know, were sacrificing their children to their false gods. They burned them in their altar fires. They would throw their children live into the altar as a way of worshiping their gods. They were engaging in ritualistic prostitution as an act of worship to their fertility gods. They had male prostitutes and female prostitutes that they called priests and priestesses. And part of their worship was sexual immorality and adultery and fornication. In the Bible, foreigners and God's people alike are punished, often severely, when they sin. And the reason is that God and sin are incompatible. Justice prevailed. But God had chosen this special people, the Israelites. And by their faith in him, by their repentant hearts, he was going to use them, he was going to build a nation. And so he removed the wickedness from the land so that his people could inhabit that land and he could bring a name, make a name for himself there through his people. Now what about the children? Still a question there, isn't it? Why the children? Why did they have to die? They had not even sinned. What about those children who had not even reached an age of accountability? Why are they held accountable? Why are they killed for their sin? And when I look at that, I see this not as an act of justice on them, but as an act of mercy. Because they were being raised in a wicked environment of total depravity. If they had been allowed to grow up there, they would have ended up just as wicked as their parents and they would have died just as their parents did. Their deaths now spared them from eternal condemnation in hell. And it was an act of mercy because they had no sin of their own. By destroying the Canaanites, God was trying to protect his holy people from being led back into sin. He couldn't allow wickedness to dwell in their midst. They couldn't even live alongside it or it would come back to haunt them. It would infiltrate their ranks and they would fall too. Unfortunately, the Israelites didn't obey God completely and history shows that eventually, as they allowed some of these Canaanites to still live there, eventually that religion of the Canaanites made its way back into Israel. They were intrigued, they were enamored, they were enslaved. And some of the kings of Israel actually became even worse than their neighbors had been. And so God punished his own nation and God wiped out Israel and sent many of them off into exile later. We'll learn that later in the story. Because God is just and God is holy. Now, if you want to read more on this, Lee Strobel talks about it in The Case for Faith. We even have copies of that we could share with you today. So as Joshua and the Israelites march into Canaan, they had great success. They go to the the city of Jericho and it falls before them. Eventually, they conquer also Ai. And then they move on and they go into a southern campaign where five kings of the Canaanites unite together and they try and, and stop them, but they are defeated in battle. And then they go to a northern kingdom. There's about 14 cities that unite together and they try to 
to uh, uh, overcome the Israelites, but they cannot. They are defeated. And finally, at the end of Joshua's life, the Bible says the land finally rested from war and there was peace. We too face many battles today, don't we? They're not like these battles. You know, we don't go in with armed with uh, swords and spears and shields and, and all the equipment that soldiers have. These are not the same kind of battles that Joshua fought, but they are battles nonetheless. There are many differences, but they're real battles. One difference is this. People are not the enemy. You know, we're not in there to kill the other people. The people are not the enemy. Satan's the only enemy. The people that we're actually trying to reach are people under his control, but they are not our enemies. They are simply people of various kinds enslaved to him. Many of them don't even know the gravity of the situation. Many of them don't know that one day we will all give account to God for our actions. And so our responsibility is to warn them, to love them, to help them to see that God has a way for them to escape the condemnation they deserve. We need to have the same attitude toward them that Jesus had when he was on the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even if they oppose us, they are not the enemy. So that's a difference. Another difference is that our goal is not conquest, but compassion. Our goal is not to exterminate people, but to save them. The goal is for them to be redeemed and brought to God. This is a real battle, however. Because there are real players here. There's, there's real danger involved. And this battle requires us to be strong and courageous in our faith and in God's work. Our weapons are not swords or shields, but the word of God or prayer and love itself. Even though it may not seem like it at times, we are in just as intense and as deadly a war as Joshua was. Christians today are sent by God into some of the darkest most evil places on earth, armed only with prayer and love and the word of God. And it seems crazy. Sometimes these Christian evangelists are beaten. Sometimes they are tortured. Sometimes they are killed. But they go anyway. And eventually, God brings success. Eventually, God brings victory. Amazing victory and success. Sometimes our most bitter opponents become our brothers and sisters in Christ, much like Saul of Tarsus who was out trying to kill all of the Christians, trying to do away with Christianity, and he became the strongest proponent for the very thing he was trying to stamp out. This battle is also different because it is a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. It is an eternal battle, not a temporal battle. We are fighting for the souls of men and women and children, not for nor territory, not for a land of our own, but because people matter to God. The weapons we use are weapons of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It may not seem like much, but this is a powerful weapon here, the Word of God. For this is not my word or yours. These are the words of God himself. And they will not fail. They will not be defeated. This battle we face is for souls. This battle we face has eternal consequences. And it is a very real battle. 
Joshua and the Israelites were the agents of God's judgment and wrath, and they were completely justified in doing what they did. But as the church of Christ, we are agents of reconciliation, agents of redemption. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. Through Jesus, anyone can be reconciled to God, redeemed by his blood. The vilest, most rebellious person you can possibly imagine is welcome, is loved, can be accepted by God if they will turn from their sin and they will receive Christ by faith. Know this, that in this battle, great courage is still required. Maybe you've noticed that already. Maybe if you've been a Christian for a little while, you realize that it takes some courage to take your stand for Christ. It takes courage to live and work in a very worldly world where Christian values are laughed at and life is cheap. It takes courage to raise our children in schools and communities where our godly principles are suspect. It takes courage to speak up in conversations with our friends when the subject, through politics or religion or whatever, turns to values. Values that we must own up to and say, this is right, this is true, this is what I believe. And that takes courage. It takes courage to be sent by God into some of these dark places on earth where Satan's strongholds exist. It takes courage to befriend one's enemies, and to love the unlovable. But that is what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. As God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. I will be with you wherever you go. He says the same thing to us. Be strong and courageous, for I will surely be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so when I ask you this morning, do you have courage? Do you have courage? Because you can't. Do you see yourself as a courageous person? You can't. You can be that person. If you have God, you can have courage. You know the word enthusiasm actually comes from Greek words. It's in theos. When you are in God, you have enthusiasm. God in us is what gives you the strength to do what you need to do for God. God working in you and in me is what makes it possible for us to do His work and to speak His word and to share His love and to bring lost people to Him to be found. God's power is unlimited. God's power is unconstrained. It is unstoppable. So why shouldn't we have courage? Because God is in us. I think we only lose our courage when we forget that God is in us. When we stop looking to God and we start looking at ourselves for strength or for victory. Let me share with you as we close today a powerful scripture. This scripture comes from Ephesians 3.20. I want you to look at with me, please. First phrase, Now to him who is able. To him who is able. You say that to anybody else other than God? No. God is able. You are enabled. You are unable, you are disabled, You whatever you want to say. We are not able, but to him who is able, there is no limit to his ability. There is no stopping his ability. It is beyond comprehension. It is beyond measuring. It is beyond cataloging. 
to him who is able. In another phrase, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And even beyond what we could think, beyond what together as a group we could collectively say, gee, God can do that. Beyond what we could ask, and we have some pretty big asks, don't we? Beyond what we could imagine, and some of you have great imaginations, beyond all that is the ability of our God. He is able to do immeasurably more, no limit, to what we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in you, that is at work within us. This power, this ability, this immeasurable quality of God, that nothing is beyond his grasp, nothing beyond his reach, nothing beyond his comprehension, nothing beyond his ability, is put inside of you and me. And we shrink back in fear. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us that we are discouraged? That we are disheartened, that we are depressed, that we are disillusioned, that we wonder how we could ever say something for God or we could ever do something for God. I can't do that. You can't do that. But it is not up to me. It is God whose power is at work within us. Come on, people. It's not up to me because if it was up to me, we would fail. It is not up to my strength or to your strength. It is not up to my intelligence or yours. It is God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is in work within you and within me. And then Paul says to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You see, this is a God that we serve. This is the God that enabled Joshua and the Israelites to cross the Jordan River and to take the land. This is the God who was with every prophet and king and was trying to use every person in that nation. And this is the God who brought his son Jesus to earth and the God who enabled and empowered the church and imbued the church with his power. This is the God who is still alive today and in you and me and in New Hope Christian Church, he wants to use our lives to his glory and he doesn't care whether we have the ability or not. He doesn't care whether we understand everything or not. What he wants is faith, what he wants is obedience and when we give that to him, then he will fill us and he will use us and he will use us in ways that we cannot ask or imagine. That's the point today. Do you get it? Are you encouraged? So that that courage will be seen in our lives. I pray to God that it will be. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each one of us today. When we shrink back in fear, when we are disillusioned, when we are discouraged, I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us that it is not about us, it is about you. It's about your ability. And it's about your power that flows in and through each one of us. Lord, we just surrender to you. We surrender to your ability. We surrender to your, your plan. Sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes it's beyond what we would imagine, what we would ever strategize. It'd be like marching around Jericho, blowing our trumpets. It'd be like some of these other 
things that you called your people to do that didn't seem to make sense. Remember a guy that was told to reduce his army, to take away the weapons, bring out torches, bring out clay pots and shout loud and that would win the battle. We're going to see a lot of examples of this, Lord. We are the example now in this generation of people that are frail, people that are fearful, people that are lacking in faith sometimes, people that are scared to death to talk up about Jesus, to stand up for Jesus. Encourage our hearts today. Give us strength that comes from you. Help your ability to flow through us because it is your power that is at work within us. Help us remember that, Lord. Give us that courage as we go out this week. Use us to your glory forever and ever. Amen.